Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Casey Atkinson. She is a cattle rancher, a speaker, and a travel addict. Welcome, Casey. It's an honor and pleasure to have you here. I know we've been trying to get this done for a while, so it's nice to finally have you here so we can sit down and have our chat and can share a little bit about who you are and the beautiful light you put out into the world through all the work you're doing. Welcome. Well, I am very excited to be here. So glad we we finally got our calendars to mesh to make this work. <laughs> yes, yes. How are you doing today? I I am good. I have put yeah. in a full day already this morning. It feels like, but I am doing good. Like <laughs> it's always crazy hectic this time of year when you're calving on the ranch. So, <laughs> well, with that being said, let's jump right in. Casey, how long have you been a cattle rancher? So technically, I've been doing this my entire life. I was mm-hmm. born and raised on a very isolated cattle ranch in Southeast Wyoming that my great grandfather actually homesteaded in the late 1800s. And so wow. it has always been a part of my life. I got my first cow when I was three months old and I've been in the cow business ever since, <laughs> but I have not lived full time on the ranch my entire life. So I have actually only been home full time for about six years now as an adult. I came home after we lost my brother. We're coming right up on his seven-year anniversary of losing him unexpectedly. And so once he passed away, he was the one who was going to be coming home. And his death changed everything for everyone. And so now I'm here instead. And I've been here for six years full time. And so how has that journey been for you then to be, I guess, kind of literally thrown into it, not expecting to have been living this life? How has that been for you? How has that journey been for you? I mean, it's definitely hard, right? Because you're you're grieving not only the loss of your brother, who you loved, but you're grieving the loss of a life that you thought you would have, you know, for, oh gosh, 15 years. You know, I was an adult with a career for 15 years before everything changed and I came home. You know, that being said, it wasn't like I didn't know what I was doing because I did this, right. you know, from birth till I was 18. And, and I certainly had come home to help even as an adult, I would take my vacation time to come home on the ranch and whatnot. Because like I said, I still had cows. My family was still running cows for me. So I needed to show up as much as I could. So, you know, I technically knew how to do all of the things, but it is an adjustment when, you know, your future was something different, at least in your mind to reconcile moving to a, you know, I live 85 miles away from town. I live 40 miles away from the highway to even start to get to town. My nearest neighbor is miles away. And so, you know, it's a whole different life than I was living. And so it's certainly an adjustment to come home as an adult into a life that you hadn't planned on. So I'm, I'm grateful I had the ability to do that and to support my family in that way. But it certainly has been hard in certain ways too. You, yeah. know, you did have to let go of, of a future that you thought you were going to have for yourself for something different. Was there any resentment there in the beginning? for you? I don't I don't think resentment is maybe the right word because there was never, you know, I wasn't forced to do this, right? My parents right. didn't say you have to come. They wanted yeah. me to make choices for myself and if I wanted to choose to continue to live my own life as I was living it, they were fine with that. But that choice was obviously going to mean something for my parents, particularly my dad. This is the only life he's ever known. He is 79 years old now, right? He's about to be on his next birthday. 
So the reality was he couldn't continue to do what he had done on his own. And so I kind of had to weigh out what's the choice you can live with making. And for me, it was easy. It was to come home and, and to make sure that he could continue to do the thing that he loved because he's been an amazing dad to me. And if I had the ability to do that, you know, and, and I think the family history and the family legacy is so ingrained in me that I just felt like I had to honor that. And so, you know, I don't think there was any resentment because I wasn't forced to do it. This is my choice. And at any point in time, I could walk away and, and make a different choice, but it is still hard. You know, I, I won't yeah. lie about that. It is still difficult. Yeah. Do you love the work? Like, do you love what you do? I love the idea of it, right? I love, <laughs> you know, I love the people who represent this life. Do I love fixing fence and irrigating and running machinery and having to mechanic? And, and even the hardship that comes with this time of your calving is, you know, there's something magical about watching a baby calf be born and take its first steps and figure out how to nurse. But emotionally, it is gutting to me every time we lose one, right? Like I spend all spring yeah. and years. And so I don't know that I love it, but I think yeah. that it has so much significance and so much meaning and it matters so deeply that yeah. I find, I guess I find comfort in that or, you know, okay. significance in that. And so it allows yeah. me to yeah. continue to do it. For sure. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that the cattle ranching, beef, and agriculture industries are pretty much a male-dominated industry, correct? (laughs) Yes. I I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. So being a woman in this male-dominated industry, what, if any, type of pushback or adversity have you had to deal with? And if so, how have you dealt with it? So, you know, I think the landscape is changing. I think it's yeah. something like 36% of all agricultural operations now are owned by women and so oh, wow. and, and operated by women. And that has just changed okay. drastically, I would say in the past decade, really, that women have really just kind of stepped up and, and love this industry and, and want to be a part of it. But it is male dominated, right? It, it has been. Yeah. And, and I look back and I, I can look at all of the work that my great grandfather did. And I think I couldn't have done that. I think there's a reason why it was male dominated for such a long time. We are in a place now where there is technology available, there's equipment available that allows it to be possible for me to step into this role that I don't think would have existed 60 years ago. Right. And so, you know, I think to be fair, there's a reason it was very male dominated. It's weird. I grew up in a neighborhood where there was only a full generation of women. No sons were born. So if the ranch was going to continue, most of my neighbors had to pass it to a daughter, right? And then maybe a son-in-law was in the picture, but it was a daughter who had to step up. But in my family, (laughs) I am the first daughter in generations that is in this position. And so, you know, I think it's been an adjustment for everyone. I never really felt like I didn't necessarily have a voice that was being heard in the industry because I'm a type eight Enneagram personality. So I am very assertive and I am very, you're going to listen to me. If I have something to say, I'm not going to let you put me (laughs) in the corner. And I don't think that's a common personality type for people in agriculture. So it wasn't until I came home, I think six years ago that I really started to see that women are still having to fight to have a voice and a place and to be taken seriously. It was a hard adjustment for my dad to wrap his mind around having a daughter come home versus the son he expected for all this time. My brother and I were very different personalities. And so I think as a parent, when you have prepared yourself for 32 years for one child to come home, and then all of a sudden you are faced with a completely 180 from what you thought you were getting, that's a hard adjustment for them to make as well. I had been the boss in my previous position, And so I was used to people doing what I told them to do. It was a hard adjustment for me to go back to taking orders from. But I think when I'm out, say in the industry in general, when I'm out, you know, at conferences or in groups or whatnot, there is a little bit of, I have to prove my worth and I have to prove that I know what I'm talking about, but I make sure that I can and I do. And then I feel like I earn the respect from the men in the industry and, and am given a place. But I still think we're a lot of years away from women, I think, really having that equal voice in our industry and really having that kind of cemented 
respected place. I still think there's a lot of road to go and and I'm happy to be part of paving it, I guess. You mentioned you've been six years now back home doing this full time. So what was your career before this? What were you doing before this, before you moved back home to, to take over the farm, so to speak? So I actually worked in higher education for about eight years. I worked in an admissions office at the university that I went to. And then I worked with students in residence life. I actually taught part-time, primarily public speaking, everyone's favorite college course. I know everyone loves that they have to take that. And so I taught that for three and a half years, kind of just part-time on the side. And then after I left higher education, I went to work in extension Uh, which for people who don't know what that is, if you think of 4-H, a lot of people have heard of 4-H, the kids that are showing at county fair or involved in baking and cake decorating and sewing and gardening and rocketry and, you know, all of those fun projects. I worked with kids who were in 4-H who were showing the livestock and horse projects and adults. And so I did that for many years. I worked briefly with a leadership education and development program for people in agriculture. And so I don't know ultimately what I would have done moving forward. I probably would have worked at getting back into a position that was maybe more closely affiliated with supporting the cattle industry without actually having to run the cows, if that makes sense. (laughs) I did a few things. I hadn't quite found what I thought my final resting place was going to be. But I want to go back to speaking about women in your industry. If you could share one piece of advice with the future generation of women in agriculture, what would that be? I think one, it helps if your heart is really in it. This is a really hard life. And so I think to make it truly worth it, if you don't come off of a generational operation and find yourself in the exact circumstance I'm in, you have to love it. You have to want it. And I think it's incredibly important to be very well educated, to know what you're talking about and to go out and to seek. And that doesn't necessarily mean you need a formal college education, but to seek the opportunities to really understand the industry and be very knowledgeable about it. And then to be tenacious and knowing that you have a place here and you have a right to be here and that if this is what you want, it's going to be worth it. So be prepared to put in a lot of hard work to make your dream happen. But if this is what you want, then absolutely you should choose to be a part of this. And there's a place for you here. As you said previously, you are seeing a shift in terms of more women making the jump into starting to get into that world, the same world that you're in. So what do you think the reasoning is behind that? Why is it shifting, you think? I think part of it is we have moved into a place where women can see a future here, right? More than just being the wife, I think. And that's not to discount. I don't think people appreciate how hard ranch wives or farm wives have worked and how much they've contributed to the success of operations in all of these generations past. I know so many phenomenal women who we're right there beside the husband or the dad or the granddad every single day. And we're just as capable and competent, but it wasn't their name on the the land deed. And so people don't really probably give them the credit that they deserved. But I think we've just moved into a shift where women can see themselves here. They can see themselves being able to do this and to make this work. And, And I don't think that was the case in years past. And so I think it makes it easier for girls, women growing up and thinking, I can do this and I can be this and and be a part of it. And I think particularly as we move into kind of this social media world, which we've been in for a while, but I assume we'll only continue to be a part of, women do a better job of interacting with the public and, you know, being willing to carve out the time to show our life to people. There are not as many men doing advocacy work as there are women. And that's such an important piece of what we have to do, I think, moving forward. And I think women in general, I don't know, it's maybe it's easier for us to express our passion about this life and for people Mm -hmm. to connect with that and, and see it. And so I just think it's women can see the potential and they can see the hope and they can see a place for themselves. And so they've really stepped up and started jumping in. And I think it's great. Well, I think more men need to start stepping up and speaking out and doing more advocacy work. And I love that you said that women have been there the whole time. They've been there all along supporting the family 
and right there beside their husbands, beside their sons and so on. That's true with every industry though. That's not just the farming industry. As they say, right, there's behind every good man is an incredibly strong and good woman. So it's the same across every industry, but I love that you shared that and that women are now starting to get recognition for what they're doing in the farming, cattle, agriculture industry. It's it's well-deserved. Absolutely. I look at my grandmother and I think my grandfather died before I was even born. And yet she had sheep until I was eight. And she was the one out there checking them and making sure they were okay and taking care of them. Not that my dad wasn't there helping her, but they were still her sheep and she was still doing that. So I think it's always been that way. We just maybe haven't had the recognition of, of being in the limelight. Like hopefully we kind of will be moving forward. Can you share with us what a typical day in the life of Casey is as a cattle rancher? Well, it depends on the season that we're in. So today we're calving. So last night, right before dark, I had found a calf yesterday afternoon with no mama. I could tell from looking at it that it probably hadn't had any groceries and was potentially (laughs) going to be a problem, meaning its mother had abandoned it, whether it was a twin or whether she was just a crappy mom, I'll never know, but... Anyhow, so I went back at dark and hunted it up. Sure enough, hadn't found a mom, so I brought it to the shed. So this morning I was out at daylight back in the area where I had found it, hunting up to just to see if mom had magically came back. She hadn't (sighs) came back, quick like made some breakfast. We fed cows this morning first thing, and then I had cows in my shed I needed to turn out because I've got four two pair in my shed and then two bums. So I had to get those cows situated. I had to get my bums fed. I had to clean my shed and take care of all of that. I've got irrigating that as soon as we get off here, I'm probably going to go check some water and do some (laughs) irrigating so we can get some hay raised. If I have any spare time, I need to fix some fence because we had a horrible winter, lots of snow. We just got melted out to where I can find the fence. So snow tears fence down. I need to get it put back up before my cows decide to go somewhere they don't belong. Then this afternoon, I'll have to ride through the cows, run through them. I look for any new calves. If I find any, I tag them which means I put an ear tag in their ear with the same number on it as the cow has. So if something happens, I always know which calf belongs to which cow and I can get them back together and and figure things out. And in between then, I need to feed these calves in the shed a couple more times. I need to make sure that my replacement calves in the crawl are fed. And by then it'll probably be dark and I'll be tired. And I go to bed about eight o'clock, like I'm 102 because I'm just so tired. Holy Uh, shit. Well, I can understand why just listening to you, I'm exhausted. But in June, we focus on irrigating and getting pipelines working and fence, whatnot. We'll turn the cows kind of out onto summer pasture because hopefully by then we're done calving. In July and early August, we're putting up our hay crop, whatever hay we can manage to grow up here for the winter. Late August, September, October are, you know, building projects if we need to replace fence or we need to build it our corral back up or, you know, try to get machinery kind of caught up and fixed or feed wagons or those kinds of things. We're also preg testing cows and sorting off which ones we're going to keep for replacements to stay in our herd versus become part of the beef supply. And then usually by November, we're feeding cows again. November, winter time is feeding. And then late March, we start calving. And so when we Holy have first calf peppers to calve, that's a 24-hour-a-day adventure. They have to be checked every single hour, 24 hours a day to make sure that they can wow. have their first calf okay. And then we just roll back in. So it's pretty seasonal. But once you've been through a year, you know what you're doing. Holy shit. <laughs> what lights you up or inspires you the most about the work that you do? So this time of year, like I said, I think we t- we talked just briefly before we started recording about how hard it is every time we lose a calf. And so we run about 400 cows. And so I'm not going to save every calf. Sometimes they're just not born right. Sometimes things go wrong. Predators get them. They get killed by the cold. Something is wrong. They're not coming right when they're being born. And sometimes they die in the cow before I can get them out. And so every time you fight to save a calf and can't, it's gutting to you. But I think every time you fight to save a calf and you can, there's just something about that. And again, you know, I think I'm really good with cows. 
much better in some ways than dad is <laughs> and much better than I think my brother maybe would have been. But it's because I have so much compassion for animals that I will try everything. I won't give up until it's the end. And I think yeah. a lot of times, you know, everyone tries to save them, but I'm not sure everyone tries quite as hard as I do sometimes. And so okay. when I take a, a calf that, you know, everyone else had given up on and somehow I managed to pull it through and get it going, there's just so much satisfaction in that in knowing yeah. that you, you saved their life that I think that compels me to keep going to make sure that yeah. these animals that I'm stewarding who have a purpose, right? Their job is to become yeah. delicious food for you. Let's be very clear about yeah. that. I understand that. But my job is to make sure that they have the absolute best life possible while they're with me. And I think I'm yeah. really good at that. So on the flip side, then what would you say is the most challenging parts of your job? What is one of the most challenging? It is mentally and emotionally exhausting. I think mental health is something that doesn't get talked about enough in agriculture. Agriculture has, I think, the highest suicide rate of almost any occupation that exists. Wow. Because of the mental, emotional, and financial strain that it puts on you every single day. And so, you know, that is always a challenge. Like I said, you lose a calf, it guts you. You're always on the edge of being broke. I mean, our goal is to break even and, you know, not lose more money than we make, like to be able to pay our bills. So the financial stress is very real. Just the fact that you work 365 days a year. Cows have to be fed every single day. Cows are going to calve every single day during calving season. I don't get Sundays off to go have brunch with my friends. And so it can be very lonely and very isolating and just exhausting to run, 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 run all the time and to not have the break or vacation days. And that's not to say that I don't at some point get some time away from the ranch to to recover, but it's six months of you're going to be here and you're going to work every day. And that's just the way it is. And that is exhausting. It takes a toll on you mentally and physically for sure. For sure. So what is being done then? that you're aware of, or maybe you're championing or part of, to help assist with the whole mental health issue among your industry? I think there are people out there who are maybe making the conversation okay. It's interesting. People in agriculture are just the most eternally optimistic people that I have ever met, I think at their detriment. So I remember last year, I think we were sitting at the auction where we sell our calves And we don't have any control over what we get, right? We get told what our animals, what our hard work is going to be worth. We have no, in in our system and the way we do it, we have no control over what we're going to get from year to year. And I remember, you know, someone walking up and just saying, well, maybe next year. And I don't know how many years of my life I've heard people say, well, maybe next year. That's always the response. Well, maybe next year. Maybe next year there won't be a drought. Maybe next year the cattle market will be good. Maybe next year you won't have to deal with some horrible illness that wipes out 20% of your calf crop. Maybe next year. And so it's just always like, but next year, right? You're just optimistically hoping for this cold next year. And I think this forced optimism has not been so good for our industry. I think we need to do a better job of making it okay to say, today's hard and I'm having a bad day and struggling and we aren't doing good. And I think we're moving towards with a younger generation coming in. We are more honest about our bad days and that it's tough and that it's hard and that, you know, to make it okay that if you need help to go get that help. We're probably not an industry that is notorious for seeking out that type of help, mental health help. Well, I I would think that a piece of that is to do with the fact that it's male dominated because men typically are not ones to admit that they're (laughs) struggling and dealing with shit where women are more apt to do that. So maybe the women, I think the women coming into the industry is a good thing because maybe that will help bring awareness around it as well because women are more willing to talk about that stuff. I, I hope so. I think so. What do you so. think? And Sorry, I go think, ahead. You know, no, there's go some ahead, great Casey. people in kind of, or at least associated with the industry, particular on social media that are making that conversation okay. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm, I'm Which done. Which is important because that's thought. where it starts. <laughs> it starts with conversation though. We have to talk about these things. These things need to be discussed so that people are aware of what's going on. 
Casey, what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions or myths that you would like to debunk about the agriculture industry? So there are so many. We could spend an hour talking about them. (laughs) But I think from a timeliness standpoint, the one that probably comes to mind is environmental impact. So cattle in particular get hammered, particularly in the news and by celebrities and all the people about methane emissions and how bad that is for the environment. And I'm not going to deny my cattle produce methane. Methane is not great. But here's the thing. Ruminant animals, which my cattle are, have been in existence for hundreds of years. So before I was running cows on this place I call home, buffalo used to exist here. And buffalo were ruminants just like my cattle were. And we were running them in the same number of buffalo, essentially, as cattle exist today. And so methane emissions by ruminants aren't new. They're not an addition to anything that is occurring. And cattle are an important part of maintaining our environment because in order for plants to maximize the amount of carbon they can pull out of the atmosphere, they have to grow, they have to spread, they have to propagate, they have to do all of these things. And cattle grazing them actually encourages all of that to happen. So my cattle actually encourage plants to pull more carbon out of the atmosphere than they would on their own. When my cattle are walking across the surface of the soil grazing, they're compacting that soil down. So the carbon that plants can pull out of the atmosphere and get underground where it can't do any damage and we want to leave it trapped, my cattle help keep it there. So my cattle are an important part of this biogenic carbon cycle that has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. What is new is people and their greenhouse gas emissions. Electricity is relatively new. Driving cars is relatively new. Using cell phones is certainly new. And all of those things are major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions. Another thing that we do an incredibly poor job of is wasting food. 40% of the food that is produced in this country ends up in a landfill to rot. And when food rots, it also creates methane, which is a new addition to the methane being released into the atmosphere, which is very different from what my cows are doing. And so if we as people just made better decisions, if we used our food more responsibly, if we remembered to turn the lights off and the TV off when we walk out of a room, all of those things would have a much greater impact on the environment than taking my cows away, which would only result in people being hungry and not getting their nutritional needs met. Because Animal protein is such an important part of meeting our nutritional needs, making sure we get all the amino acids that we need, all the vitamins and minerals. And so I think that's a huge myth, although there are so many others um, I could talk about. That's the big one for me. (laughs) So why do you think there's such a disconnect then with people? Is that just lack of education, lack of awareness, not asking questions? Why is this such a huge myth then for people? I think we're an easy target. If you have lots of money tied up in activism, people who don't think we should be eating animals, all of that stuff, it makes a really easy (laughs) attack, right? Oh, all we have to do is get rid of cattle and we'll save the earth. Well, no, they did a study and it would only reduce total greenhouse gas emissions by I think 2.6% if we removed all livestock, like they just cease to exist tomorrow because cattle aren't going to exist if they don't serve the purpose of becoming food for you. There's no need for them to exist or pigs or chickens or any of those things. And so it's an easy attack, I think, for people who have money who are agenda driven and it it makes a good soundbite. We only represent 1.5% of the population. So it's hard for us to fight back because we don't have the time or the energy or the money or any of that. And when people don't know what to do, right, you Google, you go to Netflix, which are not credible sources of information some days. And so you get your information from there or some important celebrity or political figure steps up and says, oh, this is awful. And I mean, what are you going to do when you don't hear another side or there isn't a, you know, a, a counterbalance to that perspective saying, hey, wait a minute, let me give you some information about how this works. And let's talk about real solutions to our problem. Well, you think back way, way back in time, humans ate meat. That's what we had to eat. Like, do you face a lot of this bullshit from groups, activist groups and whatnot as a rancher? I live too far in the middle of nowhere for anyone to find me. And I'm not big enough yet on social media. (laughs) People haven't really come for me on there. But, you know, I know a lot of people who do. I mean, obviously, 
you look at packing plants are always being picketed and protested and feed yards a lot of times have to deal with protesters and and people and and whatnot and so it is a a real concern in the industry i know a lot of people who put themselves out there on social media as advocates who have much larger followings than i do and they very much get targeted by activists and whatnot and and it's kind of like i have enough challenges i don't really need people hating me too but at the same time if i can have a conversation with one mom in Dallas, Texas, and make her feel better about what she's feeding her kids. And then she's going to share that with her friend group. It was worth my putting myself out there to do that because I do have a lot of research in my pocket that I can share with people and say, Hey, you know, here's why this is important. And, and I don't care how you eat. If you want to be a vegan or a vegetarian, I have no issues with that. You're supporting agriculture. If you eat, I just want you to not attack me for how I want to eat. Because I do think that animal protein is important. And for people who choose not to eat it, I hope you have the educational base to understand what you are missing from your diet and need to figure out how to get added in. Because plant protein and animal protein, they're not the same. They don't provide the same nutrients. They're not metabolized by our body the same. They don't provide the same amino acids that we need, which are incredibly important to maintaining our health. And so, you know, villainizing food choices to me is very elitist particularly when one in eight people in this country is food insecure. No one wins by making people afraid of food or, you know, trying to take away their choices. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. If you could share one thing with people who have absolutely no knowledge of ranching, what would that one thing be? So I've shared a lot, I feel like, but I I think one thing that I want people to understand (laughs) is just that we do this because we love it not because it's making us rich or wealthy or well off or it's just, it's a passion and it's a love for the land or the livestock or, you know, getting to spend time with your family that most people don't don't get to spend, even if it's working, (laughs) but there's just so much love here for what we do. And that's what drives us. I mean, not that we don't appreciate that we're feeding you and that's a wonderful thing and we're happy to do it, but It's the love for what we do that keeps us here and keeps us doing this because there are so many reasons to quit, probably more reasons than there are to stay. But love is such a powerful motivator that it keeps us here and it keeps us doing this. And so just know how much we love it and that no one's trying to poison you. We're not doing anything to raise food that isn't safe. We're eating what we raise. We're feeding the people we love what we raise. And so please know that you can absolutely feed the people you love what we raise and it's it's going to be yeah. safe and healthy and nutritious and all the things well as you previously said there's not a lot of money in it you you fight to break even so it it has to be for love it's certainly not for fucking it's money it's definitely not for money you know you're not getting rich <laughs> no if i was getting rich i'd buy a beach house somewhere <laughs> <laughs> what is something that you think would surprise most people about ranch or farm life? Oh, well, it's got to be that we're not making money. I think, you know, people assume <laughs> that we have to be well off. Particularly, I get it, right? You drive down the road and you see these farms and all of their equipment and all of their stuff and you think, gosh, there's got to be good money in that. But you don't see the bills and the loans that they took out to have those things and how many years you have to keep them around to try to get them paid off and (laughs) and all of the things. And so we say in the cattle business, in a 10-year cycle, the cattle market kind of runs on a 10-year cycle. You hope to make money three years, you know you're going to lose money three years, and the other four you hope to break even. It's ridiculous, right? So you have to manage the years that you're making money so that on the years you lose money, you don't go under. And so, you know, my great-grandfather, he actually lost the ranch. In 1919, there was a horrible blizzard and it wiped out his entire livestock herd, killed all of them. And so he would go broke and he lost the ranch. My grandfather had to buy it back. And my parents bought the part of the ranch I was raised on right before the crash and recession of the 80s. And so it has been a fight and a struggle to hang on all of these years. We are kind of now in the past decade financially stable, which is ridiculous. And so I think people would just be surprised to know how little money really there is. By the time you get done paying all of your bills, and everything that goes into being able to survive that there's usually no money left and that's okay we know that 
What are the top three challenges that the ranching, agriculture, and beef industry are currently facing? So the first one is, like everyone, inflation. You know, the cost of everything that we have to buy, fuel, fertilizer, hay, animal health products, fencing supplies, it's all gone up significantly. So, you know, you may have to pay more for beef in the supermarket. And yes, I may get more for my calves this fall than I've seen in a while. But the expense side of my column has gone up so significantly, it's going to wipe out any increase in income I might have seen. And we always know that it's very rare that when things go up in price that they ever come back down. And so whether we can continue to afford the inputs is certainly a challenge. I think a second challenge that we face that prior generations haven't faced is the social pressure. We almost have to have a social license to operate. And that's not something that my grandfather, to some degree, even my dad needed to have, right? They just did what they needed to do. You went to the grocery store and bought it and we're happy to have the food on your table. But now people question everything about food. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's hard when you only represent 1.5% of the population and people are multiple generations removed away from the ranch. How do you have those conversations? How do you connect with people and get those questions answered so they feel good about that? And we look at states like California and how many propositions they have passed, rules and laws that dictate how their food can and cannot be raised. And that has a significant impact and sometimes a really negative impact because we may do things that don't make sense to you, but we have very good reasons for doing it. And if we could find you to answer that question, I think we could explain to you why we were doing it and alleviate all of your concerns. And you would say, yeah, you do know what you're doing. And I totally get that now. It didn't make sense to me, but it does now. But it's hard for us to have those conversations. Can you, actually, Casey, can you share one of those things that you feel you don't get the opportunity to explain that have become such a problem? So I'm going to use an example that is not in my industry. So I'm going to be very vague because I'm not a pork okay. producer. But, you know, one of the things that people right. have had major issues with, gestational crates, right? After the mama pig has her piglets, okay. They put her in this crate that kind of keeps the piglets away from her. And people just think, oh gosh, that's so cruel. Well, they don't realize that mama pigs are notorious for laying down on their babies and killing them. And so the crate contains her, but provides the piglets safety, safe space where they can still get in and they can still nurse, but they can survive. (laughs) And so that's just a very general example. And like I said, I don't raise pigs, so... I won't pretend to be an expert, but I do have a basic understanding of why those gestational crates were a thing. But I think California has a law that you can't use them. And so then you have to factor in, well, the death loss of if I'm just going to have this mama pig free range running around where she can. And I think sometimes they even attack their piglets. So, you know, where mama can step on them and lay on them and smash them. Well, that's not good for the babies. There was a reason why they were doing what they were doing, even though it sounded cruel to you. We were doing it for a reason. And so that's just one example yeah. that comes comes to mind. What about, can you speak to, I've heard people talk about the whole around chicken farming too, where there's all these chickens packed into a small little space and that's cruel. Do you have any idea around that? So, Or is that just cruelty? So <laughs> I think one thing people don't understand about most animals is they're herd animals. You could put them in a giant yeah. place and they're still going to pack together because that's their instinct. <laughs> <laughs> they want to stay close to one another. And so, you know, all poultry right. facilities are built with understanding animal behavior. There's a minimum square footage you have to provide per animal, but it is much smaller probably right. than you are thinking that they need based off of what is their natural yeah. inclination in how they exist. And so, No, I mean, they were fine. They had plenty of room as long as they have room to like stretch out their wings and flap around and, you know, they could get away if they wanted to, but chickens, they just like to flock together. There's kind of a reason they're called a flock, right? They flock together and huddle up (laughs) because it helps them stay warm and and they like each other that way. And so even if you turn them out, you usually see them kind of glued to one another in a lot of cases. And so... It's another thing. If you want free range chickens, that's fabulous. But then understand that they're going to be eating bugs instead of grain. And that's going to change the way that they taste. And things are going to eat them when they're not in protection, right? Chickens are not, they're pretty good prey animals because 
they can't really fly and run away and raccoons and foxes and coyotes and everything's trying to kill them. And so, you know, you're going to have a much higher death loss if you don't have them protected in a building. It's just all, all things. (laughs) Yeah. And so what is the third challenge? Right, right. And so what is the third challenge? We we said there's three. three. So I think the third one has always existed and it's just the usual, you know, is mother nature going to be kind to us this year? We spent three years in a drought. Is she finally going to give us some water so we can grow some grass and not have to sell off our cows? Is the cattle market going to be good? Is it going to be enough to pay our bills? Are we going to have the birds bring in some disease we've never seen before and have to deal with that? And so those are challenges that we've always had. And we're always going to have, you know, you can't fight mother nature and I'm not going to change the cattle market diseases and all of that stuff. It's just part of what we do. And so those are always going to be challenges we have to deal with. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about you as a speaker. We mentioned earlier that you're a speaker. Are the speaking gigs that you do and share information particularly focused on ranching in the agricultural industry? So I would say largely. I do talk a little bit to producer groups about why it's important for us to be transparent and share our story and try to connect with the general population about what we're doing. Anytime I have the opportunity to do speaking with kind of a general population audience and talk about myths and try to share good information, I'm happy to do. But my real passion and focus is on estate planning. When we lost my brother, we had an estate plan. We thought we had all of our ducks in a row, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And when he died, we realized that we didn't. There were some things that we just never would have thought of. And and they were significant. They had a significant impact on the ranch and on my family. And I can't bring my brother back, but I can try to bring purpose to losing him. And so if that purpose is to make sure that no other family has to have a story like ours, then I want to do that. And so I'm very passionate about talking about estate planning. And largely I speak to agriculture groups because I'm in this industry and people might know my name, but It applies to anybody with a family business, the importance of estate planning. And so I think my message translates to any audience that has a family business that they care about passing on to the next generation and want to protect. And so being able to share those lessons and give advice and, and try to hopefully keep them from having the same issues that we had is really important to me. Casey, what do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? I think... It's my grit. (laughs) And so life in general has not been easy for me. We've had so many challenges and hardships, but I just, I think my grit, my ability to dig deep and keep going, you know, whatever life has thrown at me and to try to find a way to make the best of the situation that I find myself in and to continue moving forward and to succeed and to continue to fulfill my purpose and my calling, I think, is something that has served me well in life. Speaking of success, how do you define that word? What does the word success mean to you? So for me, I'm really driven by this idea of significance. And for me, that is defined as making a difference in the lives of people around me. And my hope that if you encounter me in a meaningful way, that you will be better off for having known me, that I will have done something in your life that was positive, whether that's giving you hope or helping you to believe in yourself, helping you succeed in the things that you want to. I'm just so driven by this need to be significant and to have meaningful impact on the people around me. And so for me, success is that for the people whose lives I have encountered, if they really feel like they were enriched or better because I crossed their path, then to me, that's, I've been successful. That is beautiful. I love that. What would you say is one of the most important things you've learned in your life? And what was your life like before learning it? And what was your life like after you learned it? So I don't know if there's going to be a before because I was raised on a ranch. And so hard work has always been a part (laughs) of my narrative and my landscape. I've never not known hard work in this idea that nothing is handed to you and that you should get up every day and go out and work to the best of your ability and accomplish what you can accomplish. And so I think being on a ranch 
really, that's probably the biggest lesson is the importance of giving something your all and sticking with it and doing the hard work, even when it's not fun, because it's important and it matters. And like I said, I don't really remember before knowing that lesson because this was just kind of how I was raised. But I, I definitely think it's made a huge difference in the person that I have turned out to be for sure. I love that. And so I would love to know your thoughts then with what you just shared. What do you think about the generation that's coming up now that is entitled and thinks they deserve this and they deserve that and they should be able to start a job at 70K and they should be able to walk in the door and get whatever they want? I mean, things are so fucked up with this in that way with this generation that they think they deserve everything or they're owed this. I would love to hear your thoughts on that being raised how you were raised. I mean, I was raised now, of course I was not raised on a ranch, but I was raised that you work for what you have. Otherwise you don't get it right. You don't get a ribbon for finishing 10th. You don't get a medal for finishing 25th. You you didn't place in the top three. You're done. Sorry. That's the way it goes. You fail your classes. You're going to fucking fail school. You're not being pushed through and passed. So I think I mentioned that I taught at the university level. I was probably not everyone's favorite teacher because, (laughs) yeah, I believed you got the grade you deserved and you didn't just get a participation. Oh, I showed up to class today. I should get an A. (laughs) It was not really my mentality. It's probably a good thing I got out of teaching. Hard for me. (laughs) It, It is so hard for me because it's so wildly different than how I was raised that No, you you work hard. My first job out of college, I made $24,000 and I was just grateful to get the job, right? And and had no expectation that I was worth more than that or I deserved more than that. You know, you figured out how to pay your bills and keep a roof over your head. And I didn't own fancy things and I didn't get to eat out. And, you know, you didn't go shopping on the weekends, but so what? You know, it was okay. I don't know what the (laughs) the answer is. It's hard because I just, kids are raised (laughs) so much different today. And I get the notion that as parents, everybody wants an easier life for their kids or them to have the things that they didn't have. But I think you can take that too far. And I think we have taken that too far because working with college kids really instilled, and I worked with college kids, oh, 10 years ago. So I can only imagine what has happened in the past 10 years, but they were so ill-equipped in general to handle life. Yeah. And, you know, the breakdowns yeah. and the terror and the fear that they had, because when they got to college, they understood how ill-equipped they were to face life in a lot of ways. It was hard. And I did my best to try yeah. to help grow them up a little bit in the ways that I could and <laughs> in the opportunities I have, but it wasn't doing them any favors. And I think they, in a lot of ways, recognized that, that they were just ill-equipped, but I don't know. I can't imagine having had anything handed to me. And I'm so grateful that I didn't. I'm so grateful that I was taught to work for the things that I have because of the meaning that they have for me and just how you take care of them and, you know, how much they matter to you and how proud you can be of them and all of those things. And I think how sad it is that all that has been stripped away from so many people, young people. And... I don't know. It's frustrating. That's what I know. It is super frustrating to me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing your viewpoint on that. I was very curious. Casey, who in your life has had the biggest impact on you and why? Probably my aunt. I'm kind of her mini me in a lot of ways. So she's my mom's sister and she Mm -hmm. was not raised in agriculture. My mom was not raised in agriculture. She actually met my dad when she came out here to teach And so that's how they met. She just got thrown into this world as an adult. But, you know, I think my aunt has always loved me fiercely. And I think so much of who I am, I I have her personality and we're just so much alike. But I think that love, that unconditional, fierce love that she really poured into me and still pours into me has really shaped so much of who I turned out to be. And so I think that has probably made the most impact on me. What is an unexpected blessing or occurrence in your life that you're grateful for? I would say the quality of the friends that I have. I'm kind of one of the people, I've always been quality over quantity. I consider most people acquaintances and not friends, which is opposite of what I think most people, but I'm just always blown away 
by the love and the loyalty and the trueness of the people who have found me and become my friends. And a lot of them have chosen me. It wasn't the other way around. They're just like, oh, we're adopting you. (laughs) Fabulous. I probably needed that. But especially I think when I lost my brother, just the way that they showed up for me and the fact that I still, to this day, I have people that will take me into their homes for a month in the winter if I need a break from the ranch to get some sanity back and, you know, to have someone in your home long-term and to just love on them and invest in them and to check on them. I'm not, I mean, I'm so busy. I'm really bad about keeping in touch with people. And yet my friends are just so faithful about constantly calling, even when they don't get the call back or investing in me. And so my friends are for sure, I think my biggest blessing. What does the word empowerment mean to you? I think for me, it's being able to live life on your own terms, the way that you want to, and to know that you can, to know that you have that ability to dig down inside of you and accomplish the things that you want to accomplish or, you know, to get the education, the knowledge, the skills, whatever it is to do the things that you want to do, you have that ability and no one can take that away from you. What challenge in your life would you say has shaped you the most? probably losing my brother in a lot of ways. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. certainly the challenge I think now that comes to mind that maybe eclipses everything else that you might've faced earlier on because it just, it changed life in every way. And I think that losing someone is always going to change someone's life, but probably most people don't get their entire life turned upside down and rerouted by losing a sibling in the way that I did. And so it's definitely a challenge. I think that I've had to overcome and and shifting hopes and dreams and mindset and learning to live a a very different life on very different terms than I expected. For sure. That's huge. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? So I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers here, but I think (laughs) the worst piece of advice that probably everyone in America gets is this notion that you deserve to be happy. So I have traveled the world travel addict. Mm-hmm. I actually just spent yep. I spent 30 days in Southeast Asia this past winter and got to go to Indonesia and Thailand and Singapore. I've been to Africa and just all of these kind of really poor places. And I would say one yeah. thing I feel like is they don't have this notion of happiness, right? Like that they deserve to be happy, that the pursuit of happiness should drive them. They are just, they take the life that they have and they learn to find purpose and meaning in it. They try to make Mm -hmm. the lives of the people around them better in most cases. I mean, people who have nothing and they just have such servant hearts. And in trying to find, I think, significance and meaning in the life that they have instead of this fighting pursuit to do something different or become wealthy beyond their wildest dreams or pursue this almost mythical notion of happiness, I feel like they find more happiness than we will ever find. Because we're chasing that instead of chasing this idea of doing something meaningful and finding the purpose and the significance in in whatever we were asked to do in life and where we were placed. And not to say that you can't change stations and all of that stuff, but I, I think happiness comes when you stop chasing it or stop thinking that you deserve it and really just focus on meaning and purpose and significance and helping people around you. I don't know. Do do you think that we don't deserve to be happy in what we're doing? I mean, shouldn't we all strive to enjoy the life that we're leading and enjoy the work because we spend so much time working? Shouldn't we try to find a thing in our lives that makes us that happy to do because we spend so much time working? So this is probably where I'm explaining myself really poorly, but I think there's a difference between I, I want everyone to be happy. Right. I definitely think happiness and joy, but I'm not sure happiness and joy are really the same thing. I think you can find a lot of joy and a lot of meaning, but I think it's the single minded. I see so many people driven by happiness, driven by the pursuit of happiness, and they never find it. They feel Mm -hmm. unfulfilled and lost and they chase all these things and it didn't bring them the happiness that they wanted. And and I think we just hammer this happiness, happiness, happiness point instead of if we hammered these other things like find meaning, find fulfillment, 
find purpose. Yeah. And in those things, the happiness will come. You can find things because mm -hmm. I think when you find something that you find truly meaningful, how can you not be happy about that? But when we focus yeah. instead on the happy, I think that becomes really elusive to a lot of people. And that's why we see this loneliness crisis epidemic that I think our Surgeon General just said loneliness is the biggest health crisis we've got in our country. And, and people who don't feel fulfilled yeah. and that their life has meaning, I think it, it's maybe a focus. Does that make sense on the wrong thing? The wrong things, yes, focused on external things as opposed to starting here within ourselves. We have to be happy here first before we can be happy with anything else in life. If you're not happy here, no matter what you find outside externally to fill those voids, you're never going to fucking be happy. It doesn't matter what it is. It's never going to fulfill you or make you happy. You have to start here. As they say, happiness is an inside job. You have to start here. We are the foundation for everything, absolutely everything in this life. If you're not happy here, you're not going to be happy with anything you get in your life. Yeah. And what you're talking about in your travels, the people you've met, I think they are that. They are happy with who they are. They've accepted their circumstance and they are just happy to yeah, be. For sure. Very kind, very loving, very just infectious people. And yeah. they have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think as Americans, we yeah. get driven. Happiness is equated with the things that we have and it's not. You know, yes, the new car yeah, is not going to make absolutely. you happy. <laughs> no, especially if you're not happy here at home in your in your own yeah. self within yourself. If you're not, it doesn't matter what materialistic things you possess. They're never going to make you happy. They're never going to fill that void. You have to fill that void starting with you. For sure. Right. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next grouping of questions just be one, two, three word answer type Perfect. thing. Okay. What is your favorite self care practice? Traveling. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? My loyalty. What's one thing you want but cannot buy with money? A husband. I need one of those to help me on the ranch. <laughs> <laughs> if you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? How important it is to love your people fiercely. What is one thing you've always wanted to do in your life but never have? Go skydiving. How would you describe yourself in one word? I think I'd fall back on the word grit. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. What is one lesson your career has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point? I think that not everyone is going to like you and that you can do the right thing and still get crucified for it. I've had some positions where doing the right thing did not make me popular, but I still did the right thing anyway. And so I think that's really important to know that, you know, not everyone is going to like you and that's okay. And that sometimes, you know, following the rules yeah. and doing the right thing is, is going to rub some people the wrong way and you just have to stand up and do it anyway. What is one thing you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance? I do think with my type eight Enneagram personality, my ability to fight for people who don't know how to fight for themselves and you know the underdog or the people who don't have that confidence but my willingness to go to bat for them because it's the right thing to do and not worry about really what it costs me because I'm okay. Casey if you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman any woman in the world who would it be and why? So this woman is no longer alive but Nellie Ross she was the first female governor not only in the state of Wyoming, but in the entire United States. One of the reasons why we get to be the equality state. And I just think it would be fascinating. She was the governor of Wyoming in like the 20s. And so that was definitely yeah. back in a period of time before women had any positions like that. And so I just think it would be so fascinating yeah. to sit down with her and, and hear her talk about her challenges and her successes and the things she was able to accomplish to really blaze a trail for women in a way that no one else had to that point. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? I think it would be that life is hard and it is always going to be hard. It's not going to get easier, but it is worth it. And there will be so many beautiful moments that you get to experience, good, bad, hard otherwise, but there's going to be so much beauty coming your way even in the midst of hard and adversity that make it worth it. 
Lastly, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech to the world, your tribe, your corner of the world, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? So I have tattooed on my arm the three words, grit, grace, and love. And so I think my last 30 seconds would be that with grit and with grace and with love, if you can find those things in the people that you surround yourself, and if you can be those things for other people, it's all okay. Those are the three things that I think will get you through any adversity in any circumstance and will allow you to have a beautiful life. Beautifully said. Casey, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. You're a fucking (laughs) badass and such an inspiration, truly. You shine such a bright, beautiful light out into the world. And I just want to say thank you for doing the work that you do and for being the light that you are in the world. I appreciate you and I am so grateful to be connected with you and to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. This has been such an incredibly inspirational conversation. Thank you. Both ways. Thank you for, I mean, just even giving me this platform and this opportunity and the opportunity to hopefully have a connection with people I would have never otherwise found if not for you. So I'm also immensely grateful (laughs) that you were willing to have me on and have this conversation with me. It is my pleasure and my honor. Thank you, Casey. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Casey Atkinson. She is a cattle rancher, a speaker, and a travel addict. Thanks so much, Casey. I hope you have an amazing you rest as well. of the day. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.